me a sweet remembrance and a flashback as we were singing a cappella when uh, the Lord started our little church in Columbus, Mississippi some 18 plus years ago for about the first year, year and a half, we didn't have any kind of instrument where we met, and if we had, we had, wouldn't have had anybody to play it. And so we sung a cappella every Sunday for at least a year and a half, close to two years. And one thing I learned about that, well, two things. First of all, it really shows up who can't sing. <laughs> but the better part of it is, over time, if folks continue to do that, it makes them sing out more. Uh, you know, the piano is wonderful, but like, let's face it, a lot of us kind of use that as a crutch. And so we kind of get quieter and quieter because the piano is carrying it. But when, when there's nothing behind you, eventually it'll help you to sing out louder. And so uh, I appreciate that. Let me mention, too, I didn't ask permission to do this earlier, but let me also mention as far as prayer needs for y'all to pray for Miss Betty Jennings. She has a orthopedic surgery this Thursday, so please remember her in that uh, as well. All right, turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Continuing our survey of the book of Mark. I did this uh, one time years ago. Well, I did, did it with several books back in the previous church, and uh, but I had said a survey. I think it was Mark at that time, and I was preaching through it pretty much like I've been doing here. And at one point, one of our men said, I really appreciate the preaching in Mark, but he said, I'm trying to wonder what really a survey means to you. <laughs> because he said, it looks like we've covered every verse so far. <laughs> I said... Well, see, it'll make you feel better if I say, now, I'm not going to strictly do a verse by verse, but we're just going to survey. And he said, yeah, but ultimately that's still what we do. And so I said, well, maybe so. Uh, but we have had a few passages that I've just read and not really dealt with, and I'm sure that'll continue to happen as I seek the Lord's leadership, just like Brother Mike said about what he sung, seeking his leadership about what we really ought to focus on. So our reading today begins in the 14th verse of Mark chapter 6, and I will read down through verse 29. Mark 6, verse 14, again, it starts with and, and so, like I say, I, I don't like to have to start a passage that starts with and and not read before it, but for the sake of time, I will. And King Herod heard of him, for his name was spread abroad, and he said that John the Baptist was risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. Others said that it is Elias, and others said that it is a prophet or as one of the prophets. But when Herod heard thereof, he said, It is John, whom I beheaded. He is risen from the dead. For Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold upon John and bound him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. For John had said unto Herod, It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. Therefore Herodias had a quarrel against him and would have killed him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just man and a holy, and observed him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. And when a convenient day was come that Herod on his birthday made a supper to his lords, high captains, and chief estates of Galilee, and when the daughter of said Herodias came in and danced and pleased Herod, and them that sat with him, the king said unto the damsel, 
Ask of me whatsoever thou wilt, and I will give it thee. And he sware unto her, Whatsoever thou shalt ask of me, I will give it thee unto the half of my kingdom. And she went forth and said unto her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in straightway with haste unto the king and asked, saying, I will that thou give me by and by in a charger the head of John the Baptist. And the king was exceeding sorry, yet for his oath's sake, and for their sakes which sat with him, he would not reject her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought, and he went and beheaded him in the prison, and brought his head in a charger and gave it to the damsel, and the damsel gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took up his corpse and laid it in a tomb. This is the word of the Lord, and he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray again. Father, help us now. We ask for the guidance and the teaching ministry of the blessed Holy Spirit to open the truth to us now. Help us, Lord, to examine our own hearts at what could possibly be for some of us a high cost to be paid for the pursuit of holiness. Lord, keep us mindful that there is a great cloud of witnesses above us, as Hebrews 11 tells us, many of whom did not die peacefully in their sleep. Lord, we just ask that this morning that you would touch the hearts of your people with these truths and that you would open the hearts of anyone here who needs to be saved. Lord, that you would show them their sin and their hopeless condition and their terrible future apart from Jesus. That you would grant them repentance and faith and draw them to yourself. Lord, whatever you're pleased to do, we will give you thanks for. We ask you to help us now and guide us in this time. And Lord, I would pray along with David that you would save your people and bless your inheritance, be their shepherd also, and carry them forever. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. One of the books several years ago, in my second pastorate, that God really used greatly to impact me, and I've read it through several times, is by a man named A.W. Tozer. Tozer ministered in the 30s and 40s, died in the 50s. And this book is called The Pursuit of God. I would recommend that highly to you, by the way. It's a small book. It won't take you long to read it. And it is a great, great laying out of the truth of what our hearts ought to be like. Pursuing God. Now... The title for my message that I gave and put in the weekly email is The High Cost of Holiness. What might it cost us to pursue holiness as Christians? And the reason I bring up Tozer's book is because to pursue holiness is to pursue God. Because God is holy and He defines holiness. It is His essential characteristic that He is absolutely, uncompromisingly, perfectly holy in all he is and in all he does. And he has said, not only in the Old Testament, but repeated by Simon Peter in his writings, be ye holy for I am holy. And so, what what it cost, what could it possibly cost us as believers to pursue that holiness that God is and that he has said should characterize us. 
The account here of the end of the life of John the Baptist gives us several things that we need to consider. Now, it begins in verse 14, when King Herod heard of him, for his name was spread abroad. He's not talking about John's name. John's already dead by this point. Everything else we read in what I've just gone through is a backstory. It's the narrative of what has already happened by now. Now that John is dead, Herod hears about a man who is going around preaching, teaching, doing many mighty works and miracles, and his wrong conclusion is that's got to be John the Baptist raised from the dead. Of course, we know, and he ultimately knows, it's not John at all, it's Jesus Christ. But he thinks that because, as he says, John whom I beheaded has risen from the dead, and that's why he does these mighty works. This is, this is a part of the backstory here, folks. See, Herod, as we read, threw John in prison and ultimately gave the order for him to be beheaded. Be beheaded. But now that he hears about this man doing these great works, he thinks it's John, and the reason he thinks that, I, I believe, is because he thinks that's God's judgment upon him for having John killed. In other words, I think Herod's viewpoint was, oh my goodness, the one I killed and thought I wouldn't have to hear or deal with anymore and wouldn't have to pacify my wife about him still being around has come back, and it's going to be worse than it was before. I think that's what he thought. And it's understandable. And he's even saying, you know, it was one thing for John to preach like he did, but now he's risen from the dead and he's still going to preach that way, but he's also doing miracles because he's been resurrected. So he's got extra spiritual power. And I'm in trouble. That's his thought. Now, one other thing just quickly of note in here. When people are talking about Jesus, and we know this happened, all the gospel accounts record that when Jesus began to minister, some of the people said, well, that's Elijah raised from the dead. Got to be. Others said, it's one of the prophets raised from the dead. In fact, Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And what they say? Some say, Elijah. Others, one of the prophets. And so that was already being talked about. But Herod would not agree. <laughs> He said, no, that's not Elijah. That's not one of the other prophets. That's John the Baptist. I know because I killed him. Had him killed. Now, the reason that people were saying Jesus might be Elijah was because they had said the same thing about John the Baptist while he was alive. See, what you have to understand, dear ones, is there was a great similarity between Elijah, the Baptist, and Jesus himself. Great similarity. Let me just give you a quick reminder about a couple of things, and you don't have to turn there because I'm going to do this quickly. But in 1 Kings chapter 17 is where we first meet the prophet Elijah, and he literally seems to drop out of nowhere. And Elijah the Tishbite, 17.1, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. It tells us the general area that Elijah was from, but the, but the context is that nobody knew who Elijah was, and all of a sudden one day he just pops up and points his finger in the king's face and says, the water's going to be shut off because of your wickedness. 
And in the same way, the Baptist came out of the wilderness, right? All of a sudden, John the Baptist pops on the scene. And he's preaching repentance for the remission of sins. And then, after he's ministered a little while, someone else comes on the scene. And John points to him and says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So, so in a manner of speaking, Jesus showed up. So all three of these men given to us in the Scripture just seem to kind of pop up out of nowhere. In fact, we know that one of the things that made people be so confused and argue back and forth about whether Jesus could be the Messiah was because they weren't even agreeing on where he came from. They said, how could he be the Messiah? He's from Nazarene. He's from Nazareth. He's a Nazarite. But he'd actually been born in Bethlehem, right? So fulfilled the prophecy there. Most of them did not know that. My point is, is that there's a great similarity between these three, and it caused Herod to think, well, I don't believe it's Elijah, although he fits that a lot. I think it's John the Baptist. There's a way that that comes even more clearly in 2 Kings, especially concerning John the Baptist. In 2 Kings chapter 1, we find a king named Ahaziah. And Ahaziah has taken a fall. Judith fell through a roof and was, as the Bible says, very sick. (laughs) He was close to death. And so he sends his men. He says, go inquire of Beelzebub the god of Ekron, whether I'll get well or not. And as they're going along their way, they meet this fellow. And this fellow says to him, is it because there's no god in Israel that your master wants you to go to a false god and ask if he's going to make it? You tell him God said he will not recover from his bed. He shall surely die. Now this is the interesting part. This is the what we might call a coincidence, but it's not. So they come back and Tell the king. They didn't even go and finish their mission. They come back and say, well, God's already said you're going to die, according to this man. And he said unto them, what manner of man was he which came up to meet you and told you these words? And they answered him, he was an hairy man and girt with a girdle of leather about his loins. And there was no doubt with Ahaziah, he said, that's Elijah the Tishbite. In the same way, the Baptist came out of the wilderness clothed with camel hair girded with a golden girdle, and he had a, at least halfway strange diet. Now, we can all get behind the honey part, right? But locusts as well, that was what he had for his crunchy food. Locust and wild honey. Now, Jesus didn't exactly do that. That wasn't his diet. But, but again, he all of a sudden appears on the scene, and so when Herod hears about him, he says, that's got to be the Baptist race of the dead. Then we get into what led up to his martyrdom. It says, verse 17, For Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold upon John and bound him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. For John had said unto Herod, It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. Now you need to understand this. This was not a simple case of a broken marriage that Herod took advantage of. In other words, Philip and his wife didn't get a divorce and she was a free woman and so he said, well, I think I'll marry her. No, Herod called Philip in and said, I'm going to take your wife. 
Now, remember, this is his brother. He said, I'm going to take your wife as my wife, and you can't say anything about it. If you do, I'll throw you in prison and kill you. You say, well, it doesn't say that in the text. No, but Jewish historians make that very clear. So Herod didn't just say, I would like to marry her. He took her from his brother and told his brother, you shut up and be quiet about it, or you'll die. Tells you a little bit about what kind of person Herod was, right? And in fact... Another historical resource says that not only did he take him away, but when they were married with great splendor and pomp, he made Philip be there at the wedding and give his blessings on his wife being taken away by his brother and marrying him. That's the kind of person Herod was. And so John faithfully, forcefully preached Herod, you're in sin. It was not lawful for you to take away your brother's wife. Not lawful at all. He stood to the truth, faithfully proclaimed what God has to say about such situations. Therefore, as we're told, verse 19, therefore Herodias had a quarrel against him. Don't you imagine she did? Probably Herod was coming in every day. Well, I saw John the Baptist again today, and he told me again it was not right for you to be my wife. He told me I'm in sin. I'm disobeying God. We can pretty much assume that Herodias didn't know God from a fence post because she wanted to kill John because of his faithful preaching. Now, folks, I'm heading somewhere with this. Keep in mind the question, what might it cost us to pursue holiness, to stand for truth. What might it cost us? But Herod would not do it. No matter how much his wife pleaded and charged him and whatever else she may have done, 4 verse 20 says, Herod feared John. That is, he had great respect for him. And yes, it also means he was kind of afraid of him too. I mean, here's this guy comes out of the woods. He probably hadn't shaved or cut his hair and he's clothed in camel's hair and he's eating locusts and wild honey and he just keeps hollering, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. That's kind of a scary figure, especially to somebody who's in sin. But yet, it says Herod knew he was a just man. He's righteous and holy. That's the point. He saw that John pursued holiness in his life. And he observed him, and when he heard him, he did many things gladly. What does that mean? Dear ones, people who hear the faithful preaching of the Word from any source, anytime, anywhere, or just not even necessarily preaching, but some Christian sharing the truth of God with them, living out a witness that they are following Christ will many times be motivated to kind of clean up their act in some ways. It is possible for the lost person to do a lot of self-reforming. It is possible. They can quit this and start doing that that's better, whatever it may be, right? They can do that many times in their own strength. And so evidently, the more that Herod heard John preach the more he tried to clean up his act in every area except the one John was pointing to, right? Mm -hmm. 
He hurt him gladly and did many things, but he didn't do the main thing. You say, well, was the main thing to get rid of Herodias and apologize to Philip? Well, that'd have been good. Send her back to her husband. That would have probably worked on a certain level. But the real point is, why did he do what he did? Because he was lost. He needed to repent and turn to Christ. So the main thing he needed to do, he didn't do. But he did all these other things and thought, that'll be good. That'll square it with heaven. Well, Herodias was not satisfied. She wanted John killed. And in spite of all of John's rebukes, she saw that Herod still had high regard for him. So, it says in the narrative in verse 21, when a convenient day was come. Now, it wasn't convenient for John. It was convenient for Herodias. It's Herod's birthday. So he throws a big birthday party. His lords, his high captains, and chief estates of Galilee. And then Herodias, in her wicked plan, knows exactly what to do. She sends her daughter in. History tells us the daughter's name was Salome. And that probably at this time, according to sources, she was between 14 and 16 years old. She came and danced. Now, folks, this was not simply some sort of ballet or waltz or whatever. This was a sensual dance. You see, isn't it terrible? Again, it just shows what Herodias is like. It was his lust for her that made him steal her from his own brother, and she knows he's still a lustful person. He has lust in his heart, and so she says, my daughter go in there and dance very lewdly. His lust will take over. She knew him. Now, can you imagine the wife being okay with that and even setting it up because she knows how her husband's heart is? That was her, that was her plan. She danced and pleased Herod. That is, she stirred up his desires. And that's why he, by the pressure and the captivating sin of his own lust of the flesh, he made a very foolish oath. A very foolish oath. Now, when people of the world persecute Christians, I've already said, some of them may listen to things that are said, things that are preached, things the Bible says, and try to reform some of their life. Ultimately, when you point to their key sin, though, that's when the rubber meets the road and they begin to persecute. And in doing so, many times it will be circumstances around those people that lead them by their own desires to do unto God's people what they ultimately do. In other words, situations will arise for the ungodly and will make them say, well, maybe before I didn't think Christians were that big a threat, that big a problem, but now I do. Now I know. And it might be a temptation of the flesh or it might be pride. It might be a lot of things. Whatever the case, Herod made his foolish oath. Verses 21 through 23. I won't read it all again. Ask me whatever you want. 
I'm so stirred up by your dancing. You just ask what you want, even to have my kingdom. And he swore about it. And so she goes and says, Mama, what do you want me to ask? Now, Matthew's account of this same situation gives us a little bit more insight. Let me just reference that quickly for us. Matthew 14 tells us again in the first part of the chapter the same thing we're reading here. Verse 7 says, Whereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatsoever she would ask. And she, listen now, being before instructed of her mother, said, Give me here John Baptist's head in a charger. You see, the plot was already laid. It wasn't where Herodias didn't know what was going to happen, and her daughter didn't know what was going to happen, and she came in and said, Hey, he liked my dancing so much, he said I could ask whatever I want to ask. What do you think? She goes... Well, maybe John... No, uh-uh. Before instructed of her mother that when, not if, when his desires boiled up and he made his oath, this is what you ask. Remember years ago, in, uh, when I was pastoring in Cedar Bluff, we had a dear family in there. They were very giving and gracious people and, and they gave a lot of gifts all the time. Just, just sweet, just out of the overflow of their heart. And one time the lady gave us a big pewter platter. I mean big. And the box it was in said, pewter charger. See, this is a big platter, big enough to hold a head. And that's why she says, I'm going to take a big platter down there, and I want John the Baptist's head in it when I come back. This gave Herodias the opportunity she had waited for. And in like manner, those who want to persecute the followers of Christ, the smart ones, smart intellectually, will bide their time and wait their turn. They won't forget. They will store up their wrath. They will store up their anger. And when the time is right, they'll pounce. Now, folks, we see that all across our nation right now. The, the struggle, the conflict, the war that's going on about first and foremost abortion to gun rights to whatever you want to name, those in power who can really make some changes have been just biding their time to come against those things because, see, they're really coming against those things to come against the people who hold to those things, that abortion is murder. They're coming against them. But, again, as... Psalm 2 tells us they are really coming against our prince. See, the person whose quarrel is with Christians because of our moral stand and our right and wrong perspective and all that, they're not really coming after us, even though they don't realize it. They're going against Christ. That's what Psalm 2 says. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, that's God the Father, and against His anointed. Capital A, that's Jesus. But make no mistake about it, it is the followers of Christ who actually do the suffering, right? See, they can't get at Jesus. If they could, even after 2,000 years, and I said recently, I won't repeat it, about a sign I saw in a parade in California to this effect. If they could get to Jesus today, they'd crucify him again. But they can't. Hallelujah. 
So what do they do? Next best thing is get to those who remind them of him. And that's what's going on. That's what's happening with John. Now, when she asked for the head of John the Baptist, it says, the king was exceeding sorry. Verse 26. But it does not say next. So he said, no, I know I made an oath, but I'm not about to have John the Baptist killed just because you asked me to. It doesn't say that. Yet for his oath's sake, because he promised, and for their sakes which sat with him. See, sometimes those who persecute Christians will kind of go further than they intended to, but when that's evidenced by others around them, even if they have a personal feeling like, well, maybe I don't need to go that far, but what will everybody else think if I back off? They'll think I'd like them. They'll think I'm not as really strong and have backbone like I ought to, so even if I have some hesitation in my heart, if I put myself out on a limb and say, yeah, those Christians need to be done away with, or they need to be this or that or whatever, then... They'll go ahead and do it for the appearance sake, right? For their own pride, for their own reputation as they think. And so to protect protect his reputation, to keep from being embarrassed, he bowed to peer pressure and to the pressure from his wife, of course, and had John beheaded. What might it cost us to pursue holiness? John's pursuit of holiness cost him his life. We congratulate ourselves, and we should. We thank the Lord regularly, and we should. I'm pulling something up to read for you here in a moment. That we don't suffer this kind of persecution. But folks, there are only a few short steps between what is going on right now in this country and what could be going on in their future. Just a few short steps. John the Baptist was beheaded. The prophet Zacharias, as Jesus said in Matthew 23, he says to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, you killed him between the altar and the temple. You shed his blood. Isaiah was placed in a log and sawn in two. Stephen stoned to death. Let me give you a few more of these. Matthew, the apostle, killed by a sword in Ethiopia as he ministered the gospel there. Mark, of whom we're reading his gospel account, was dragged by horses through the streets in Alexandria, Egypt until he was dead. Dr. Luke was hanged in Greece because of his tremendous preaching of the gospel. Peter, crucified upside down on an X-shaped cross. According to church history, he asked to be crucified upside down because he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Lord was, right side up. James, the elder of the church in Jerusalem, was thrown over a hundred feet down from the southeast pinnacle of the temple because he refused to deny his faith in Christ. They discovered that he was still alive, barely, 
on the ground, and so the enemies took clubs and finished beating him to death on the ground. By the way, that pinnacle of the temple where he was thrown off from was the same one in which Satan tried to get Jesus to jump from. That's interesting, isn't it? James, the son of Zebedee, was a strong leader of the church in Jerusalem. He was beheaded in Jerusalem for preaching the truth. When the officer was called to cut his head off, he was so overcome by James, the son of Zebedee's peace, of his comfort right before the axe fell, that he right then there, the executioner, confessed Christ himself and knelt beside him and bared his neck. And both of them had their heads lopped off. Bartholomew, also called Nathaniel in the Gospels, he was flayed to death with an iron-bearing whip, pieces of iron embedded in a leather whip. Andrew, crucified on an X-shaped cross as well in Greece. First of all, they whipped him severely with cords, then tied him to the cross to finish him off. Thomas, old doubting Thomas, don't need to call him that, stabbed with a spear in India during one of his trips to establish the church there. Jude, who wrote one of the books in the New Testament, was killed with many arrows when he refused to deny Christ. Matthias, the apostle who was chosen to take Judas's place in the book of Acts, was stoned and then beheaded. And, of course, Paul was beheaded. John the apostle was the only one of the original apostles who was not martyred. God allowed him to die at a ripe old age. But it wasn't because they didn't try. Domitian, the emperor, put him in a pot of boiling oil. He came out totally unscathed, not a blister. So he sent him to the place where he ultimately was given the revelation of Jesus Christ and wrote it down. Now, we hear all that and we think, okay, well... That's terrible, but I can see that. Those apostles, they were, they were the ones with Jesus. They were the ones who were starting the churches. They were the ones who were paying those prices. But it didn't stop there, folks. It hasn't stopped. It hasn't stopped. One of the first men in England to oppose the Roman church and stand for the truth of the Bible and that everyone should have a Bible uh, was a man named Hugh Latimer. This was in the 1300s. Hugh Latimer and his friend Ridley were tied to a stake. And fire was lit underneath them. And as the flames began to consume them from the legs up, the witnesses said that Latimer turned to Ridley and said, Be of good courage, Brother Ridley, for this day we shall light a light in England which the king shall not be able to extinguish. bring it up a little further. Late 1700s in Scotland there was a group of faithful followers of the Lord that were known as the Covenanters. They opposed the Church of England 
who was going to force them to worship as the church dictated rather than as the Bible did. Many of them were imprisoned, many put to death. One man named Richard Cameron, faithful preacher, was taken to the gallows. And he, like many others, preached a sermon while he was there and said, I have longed for this day. And they said, instead of hanging you, we will cut off your hands and your head. Richard Cameron said, I have dedicated them to the Lord these 30 years. They are His. Do what you will with them. And they removed them. And they put them in a sack and they went to the prison where Richard Cameron's elderly father was in prison for preaching the gospel and dumped them out in the floor in front of him. Do you recognize these? Yes, they are my dear son's head and hands. I could only wish that Christ would count me worthy to suffer the same fate. A little bit further on, in the 1950s, a group of missionaries flew to bring the gospel to an indigenous group in New Guinea called the Alka Indians. The leader of that group was a man named Jim Elliott. They had prayed and prayed and planned and prepared to go carry the gospel there. I'm talking about the high cost of holiness, folks. They land on the beach. Now, they'd had no contact yet. This is their very first trip. They're just getting off the plane, and a group of Alka Indians hidden in the bush sees them land and immediately attacks them on the beach and spears all but one of them to death. Jim Elliott, before that, out of many things he said, said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. What might it cost us to pursue holiness? He said, that's kind of scary sounding. I remember, and you probably thought this, I have too, I remember a lady asking me one time or saying, you know, I I love the Lord, I want to follow Him, I want to serve Him, and I want to be willing to say, whatever happens, I'm going to follow Christ. But somebody comes to me and says, if you don't deny Christ, I'm going to kill you. She said, I hope I'd say the right thing, but I I don't don't know, I don't know. And I said, listen, I understand, I'm with you right there, but... And she said, I guess there is such a thing as martyr's grace, but I don't think I have that. And I said, well, here's the thing. (laughs) If and when you need it, then you'll have it. Then you'll have it. Now, folks, the point of all this is not only... What might it cost us to pursue holiness? But really, ultimately, it's this. Do we see Jesus as worth everything? We saying a while ago, all to Jesus I surrender. Now, that's normally thought of as a, quote, altar call, invitation hymn. And, it, and, you know, it fits for that. But I would submit to you that needs to be sung by Christians considering ourselves. See, did we really mean that for ourselves? Or did we think, oh, well, that's for somebody that's lost. They need to be willing to surrender all to Jesus. No doubt about that. But do we personalize something like that and say, am I willing to surrender all for Jesus Christ because He is worth everything? Let me say to you in love to all of us, 
if we don't see Jesus worth dying for, then it's probably because we don't see him worth living for. And let's face it, because God gives martyrs grace, really the hardest task for all of us is not to die for Jesus, if we have to, but to live for him every day. Because our flesh doesn't want to do that. What might it cost you to pursue holiness? It might cost you your physical life. But if it doesn't, are you willing to let it cost you anything else in this life if God calls for it in order to follow Jesus? You know, when Jesus offered his invitation, it wasn't the kind of invitation you hear in most churches. It wasn't come forward and ask Jesus in your heart and all your problems will be over. It was, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, I can tell you that the folks who heard Jesus say that at that time had no doubt about what he meant. They were used to walking in and out of Jerusalem and other cities that the Romans controlled and seeing the rotting corpses of criminals hanging on crosses all along the way. To take up the cross was what the condemned man had to do. It was his last act before he was nailed to it, was to carry it. And when Jesus said, you want to come after me? Deny yourself, take your cross, and follow me. Is Jesus worth it? We really all need to ask ourselves that. Is he really worth all? Let's bow our heads. Now, in these moments, I want you to understand that I'm certainly not putting myself up here as one who has gotten that accomplished in my own life. That Jesus is so much all to me that I'm willing to pay any price, anytime, anywhere. I want to be there, but I have to be honest and say I'm not there yet. So I'm sure you feel that way too. We're not under condemnation. The Bible says that for the children of God, but yet we have to realize that persecution may come directly to us, to our house, our home, our church. It may not be to go to jail and ultimately be hanged or stoned or whatever it might be, but see, the very fact that it could be should make us question Do I really see Jesus as worth everything? He really is. And that's the only way we can be sure that we are following him when we see him as the one who is worth all that we have to give. Everything. Including, if he calls for it, even our own life here. That's really the call of Jesus. That's the call of discipleship. And so... In these moments, I just want us to consider what God may have said to each of us and to meditate on those things for ourselves personally. Is Jesus worth it all?
in a moment we'll be dismissed in our closing prayer. And I just ask that uh, as you leave here today, and I ask that for myself, that we meditate and think on these things.